suppression actions are one of the main remedies available to minority shareholders under the Corporations Act and can be disastrous for the company's business and ultimately its shareholders. In this program, James Dabberchee from Makinson Dabberchee Lawyers in Sydney examines how the oppression provisions operate, including the discretionary powers of the court to determine such actions and any appropriate remedy, and how to manage the risk of such an action where shareholders and or directors of a company have a falling out. James, welcome to Sound Education and Law and Pod CPD Law. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Susanna. Now, first of all, James, what what types of companies are, are most vulnerable to oppression actions? This is the right question, uh, Susanna. In short, small ones. And um, the reason for that is fairly straightforward, that if I'm a disappointed shareholder in BHP, I can probably find a buyer for my shares. But if I'm a disappointed shareholder in Susanna and James PTY Limited, then uh, the market might be just a little smaller. So it's often smaller proprietary companies we're dealing with. And what is oppression under the Corporations Act? I'm dredging back in my brain to first or third year <laughs> law school company law. Yes. Just just refresh our memories. Well, I'm sorry to, um, to, 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 to drag you back through the muck and the mire, but essentially when we're talking about an oppression suit, we're talking about our conduct that amounts to commercial unfairness. And there are lots of different descriptions. It's a departure from the standards of fair dealing, the imposition of a disadvantage, disability or burden, these sorts of things. But uh, Justice Young has a very helpful judgment that says, look, look, all of these strands are important, but the essence of an oppression suit is commercial unfairness. So what key points are the ones that we need to keep in mind when we're advising on on whether there has been oppressive conduct within Section 232? Yes, uh, there are a number. Section 232 is essentially our jurisdictional section. Um, It's the section that enlivens the court's discretion. So it sort of sets out that if this stuff has happened, then the court has a discretion to order relief. So when you're taking a look at Section 232, as I'd encourage um, anyone interested to do, what you'll find is that the court may make an order if the commercial unfairness test is met. So there's a discretion. What you'll also find is that there are no limitations placed upon how an oppression suit can come about. So Section 232B and 232C explicitly contemplate possible future conduct. So (laughs) it may not even be something existing or presently going on. It could be something happening in future. And then a third interesting point to take is that conduct can be oppressive if it's oppressive to the entire membership of the company, all the shareholders, if it's oppressive to a group of those members, or if it's merely oppressive to one of those members. Hmm. And the court is really given a very wide range of remedies that it can apply to a particular case. Imagination in the court, just consider that. What are the main remedies that are usually sought, though, in an oppression action, James? <laughs> I, I agree on both counts. The, um, <laughs> the types of orders that might be made are real broad. We can talk about amending constitutions, We can talk about authorising another person to conduct proceedings. We can talk about restraining specific people from doing acts. But the real thrust of your question is the right one, Susanna. And the the most common remedy we see is the order of a share purchase slash share sale from one um, shareholder to another. Often it will be a sale 
from the, I'll use the word inactive shareholder, to the more active shareholder at some price ordered by the court. And from time to time, we see agitation for a wind-up of the company, though that's a little more rare than a share purchase or sale. And looking at the kinds of judgments or unreported decisions or whatever, are we able to ascertain a kind of general approach that the courts take to claims of oppression? Yes, um, general being the operative word. Um, Justice Austin has a fabulously useful judgment called Tamanovich um, that he handed down in 2010 and that the Court of Appeal subsequently approved of. Uh, He said a number of useful things. Firstly, that the purpose of any relief is to terminate the oppressive conduct. So if I can phrase that in a slightly different way, the purpose of the 233 orders is to terminate the 232 commercial unfairness or the 232 corporate oppression. What His Honour also found was that commercial unfairness is obsessed objectively in the eyes of a commercial bystander, um, that non-fulfilment of expectations, even legitimate ones, doesn't establish oppression, And um, interestingly, that judges hearing an oppression suit must not remain in their ivory tower. Mm. Yes, I'm not sure if the ivory tower is even a legal thing now, is it? (laughs) How is the court going to determine whether the the conduct is or was oppressive? Do they have a a, a list of factors, a checklist? Is it a a weighing of the evidence? There are a number of different uh, angles a court Uh, should and in some cases must take um, to an oppression claim. And these were very helpfully sketched out by Justice Stevenson in a decision called Munsman and Rayward that hopefully we'll get a chance to discuss later in this pod, Susanna. I expect we will. It'll be good fun. Um, And I'm not going to run through all of them here because they're in the paper, but there are a couple that I'll sketch out. Firstly, the mechanic is the court has to determine whether on the balance of probabilities, so that civil test, the objective bystander would be satisfied that the affairs were unfair. So balance of probabilities, first element. Objective bystander, second element. Uh, Satisfaction of unfairness, third element. A couple of other points. Um, uh, His honour in that judgment uh, reinforces that a 50% shareholder in a company can seek relief. That's, That's trite for all of us fans of Section 232 because we know that a 232 claim can be bought by one member or some members or lots of members or all members, but it's an important thing to remember. And that winding up a company should only be seen as a last resort. It harkens back to our discussion of Section 233 a few moments ago. And we talked about the the courts having a, a real wide range of armoury weapons, remedies. Mm. What approach will they take to uh, determining remedies? They'll retrace the steps laid laid down for them, but it's not an easy process, um, which means, of course, that it's not easy for us lawyers to advise on either, Susanna. But if I can linger on two big points. Um, first, for anyone not familiar with the area, if I can emphasise that oppression can occur in a really wide range of circumstances. And as we found earlier, it can even relate to future conduct. And then second, um, as you rightly say, Uh, If that oppression has occurred, the court's discretion is enlivened to make a whole range of orders for relief to end the oppression. 
So the remedies are discretionary, but are the types of conduct that have actually been found by the courts to be oppressive? Do you see that as a little bit flexible and discretionary as well, James? This is the right question to ask because um, it's difficult to um, put a fence around what conduct might be oppressive. And the best we can do, I say, is to take a look at what's historically been found to be oppressive when we're advising our clients on their prospects. So some of the conduct that's been found to be oppressive in the past has been the use of, um, and I enjoy this phrase, the use of a mini board meeting before the actual board meeting to determine how the majority would vote. Um, Other examples include the payment of excessive salaries to directors, um, the failure to pay adequate dividends, and that's in some circumstances that we can talk about dividends another time. That's a fun area to discuss. Or another example, the failure on the part of the company to properly investigate irregular payments that have been made to directors. Right. Well, let's have a look at some actual real-life case examples. Medical and other professionals often get together to operate a business and, and that naturally carries a risk over time of a falling out between partners. It's not just crime, crimes and criminals that fall out, it is also medical partners. And one example is uh, the case of Dr. Leo Shanahan and Jatice Proprietary Limited. Just give us a little uh, juicy bit of background to this dispute. Uh, it doesn't get juicier. It doesn't get juicier than a holiday to sunny Canberra, Susanna. So if I can take you to Canberra, <laughs> um, we are running an eye hospital. You and I are eye surgeons, and so are a number of others. And we eye surgeons are shareholders in a company that operates the eye hospital, and um, we uh, engage in work as eye surgeons. We generate revenue that's paid to the company, and then the company subsequently pays that on to us. Now, as time passes, um, some of us eye surgeons decide we might prefer to spend our time on the golf course. We retire. From the golf course, we continue to derive a what might be called a passive income from the exertions of the majority who remain working in the eye hospital. Now, as you might imagine, our majority weren't especially impressed with this over time. They appointed a couple of directors who were sympathetic to them, the majority, and not sympathetic to the retired minority. They engaged in a number of courses of conduct, but for our purposes, the two big ones were firstly to essentially stymie the appointment of a new eye surgeon who could have really um, brought, got, got the company back on track. So they stood in the way of that, of that new surgeon who could have saved the day. And the second thing they did, it's very interesting indeed, was to place the company into voluntary administration, notwithstanding the fact it remained solvent. Hmm. Well, the Supreme Court of New South Wales found that the conduct of the majority and the majority appointed directors was oppressive. I'm assuming these are the guys out in the golf buggies. (laughs) Why did the court nevertheless not only reject the minority's claim, who as you say, could have appointed an eye surgeon with the skill of Red Hollows, but they, but also they made a, a cost order against them. Why this was that? The, this, this, is, this is the thrust of oppression. So when we say the court found that the conduct of the majority and the majority directors was oppressive, that is our 232 test, tick. We pass that. So then we turn to the court's 233 discretion 
And what I did not tell you a moment ago, Susanna, that I'll surprise you with now, is that following the voluntary administration, the minority, our golf course directors, sold their shares to our majority, our working directors, for a figure over $1.7 million, a significant amount. The court considered the size of that sale. The court considered the value of the company at the relevant time and found that because of the size of the share sale, the amount of money they received meant that our golf course directors had not actually suffered any damage as a result of the impression. So what that meant if we track back to the Corporations Act was we got a big tick for Section 232. Yes, it was oppressive, but we got a cross for Section 233 because the court did not exercise its discretion to order relief, having found that the minority directors had been fairly paid in any case. And um, sadly, for our golf course minority, costs followed the event. So um, despite proving what might be thought of as the overwhelming element of the oppression, they failed to get the relief they want wanted, meaning the claim failed, meaning they were left with an obligation to pay the successful party's costs. It must have been a tricky argument, though, James, <laughs> on the day to say, here are these fellows who are loaded enough to go schlepping around in golf buggies all day, and the poor darlings are oppressed, and it's the other ones at the back of the office doing the hard work of the oppressors. I don't know what Canberra and golf courses are like, but I think they're, they're very lush and green, and so perhaps perhaps they're not as oppressed um, as some of us might have thought. But uh, but it's certainly a very interesting outcome. Very interesting, indeed. Yes, and the, and the cost consequences. Now, in our next case, which is ICB Medical Distributors and the International College of Biomechanics, here the Supreme Court of New South Wales was faced with claims of oppressive conduct by. Both parties, so they're both pointing at each other and making accusations. Tell us a bit more about the background, James. Yes, I'm not being oppressive. You are, <laughs> um, is essentially the way we characterise this one. Um, we're talking about an orthotics enterprise that has a number of related entities. Uh, and while we might be dealing with a plaintiff and a defendant speaking loosely, um, the claims and cross-claims here have some complexity, so um, we'll just use those terms loosely if that's all right. But in essence, we've got our orthotics enterprise, we've got two shareholders and directors in dis disagreement, and what we have early on in the judgment is a finding that neither of those parties is a witness of much credit. And so the court had to dive into what actually went on. And a range of conduct, I understand, was raised in the action by both parties. They're both pointing the finger. What conduct did the court find was not oppressive? Yes. So <laughs> a, a whole number of um, oppression claims were made, but the claims which were found not to be oppressive were the defendant failing to cause our company to pay lecturing fees. Um, that was not oppressive. Um, the defendant trying to chase the plaintiff to agreeing to lease arrangements for a car lease, um, among other things, it's a good judgment, was found not to be oppressive. Um, the defendant causing himself to be a director and shareholder in one of the subsidiaries for a short time, that was not oppressive. Um, this was good fun. The, the plaintiff's failure to execute documents about the company's business address was found not to be oppressive. So... Some of those might give you a flavour for the many and varied complaints made 
but each of those was found not to be oppressive. Yes, in the vernacular, one would say, grow up and get over yourself. <laughs> um, what conduct did the court then find was oppressive? I'm waiting with bated breath, James. Yes, this is, this is, this is equally good fun. Good fun. Though the defendant was found to be impre- oppressive on a number of points, uh, including the recording of a debt owed by the company to his son uh, in respect of Australian weekends and public holidays spent overseas. Very interesting. Um, the defendant causing the recording of a debt owed by the company to himself for unpaid leave when he was a consultant, not an employee, meaning that he wasn't entitled to leave. Um, and the defendant causing third parties within his control to raise invoices um, with what the court found to be the unilluminating description of sundry creditors <laughs> for, th- for 370000 Oh, uh, the, the, the plaintiff, on the other hand, as well, was, um, was up to some oppressive behaviour. Um, this included uh, causing entities associated with him to purchase products from other entities and those not associated with the company, so sort of diverting business away from the company and um, using material developed and previously used for the company to benefit other entities relating to him. So everyone was a bit of a naughty boy in this one. Well, uh, the court had to then turn to the qu- the question of appropriate remedies, and I know what my late mother would have said. They, <laughs> they should have both had their heads banged together. But what orders did the court consider you know, should be made here? Well, I think the wisdom of your late mother is shown with this outcome. Essentially... And while the plaintiff wanted to wind up the company, what the court found, and there's echoes of Justice Stevenson's um, comments in Munsterman and Raymond here, um, was that um, the winding up ought to be treated as a last resort only. So the court ended up making an order that our defendant, so who did some of the misbehaving, um, but remained more active in the company than the plaintiff. So the order was that the defendant buy out the plaintiff's shares following a valuation, and that valuation would include and account for these debts, the unilluminating sundry creditors and the um, the claim for leave, notwithstanding the fact that the person was not an employee and these sorts of things. So following a valuation, one of our misbehaving directors was to buy out the other. Yeah, bit like family law, right? <laughs> now, family companies, James, can also be vulnerable to oppression actions where there is a falling out between family members and sometimes they can probably be even more acrimonious. The Supreme Court of New South Wales was faced with a situation like this in Boyd and Feeney. So again, give us the juicy background to the oppression action here, James. That's right. Um, this one might be called a mutated family provision action. I heard a colleague describe it that way, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's good fun. So we've got a company um, who's a corporate vehicle for a dry cleaning business. Mum and dad are its equal shareholders. And when the dry cleaning business closes, the company essentially becomes a holding company. Now, sadly, mum passes away in 2004. She bequeaths her shares to her and dad's three daughters as tenants in common. Now, there's some weird administrative stuff up in 2004 where the daughters are briefly appointed as directors and then removed, and there's no real understanding of how that happens. But from around 2004, we've got our company making unsecured loans to two of our daughters um, in the amount of about $1.78 million. 
And you can imagine our disappointed daughter on the sidelines is quite interested in these unsecured loans. Then we jump forward to May 2013 as a valuation of the company, a little over $1.3 million, and our disappointed daughter makes a quick offer uh, by email, as I recall it, to say, yes, I'll sell my shares based on that valuation, but nothing much follow- flows from that offer. Then we've got Guardianship Tribunal, as it was then known, proceedings in November 2014 about Dad's power of attorney, and we leave that with an in-principle agreement for essentially... Dad to agree to agree to uh, go through a bit of a valuation process and end up buying our disappointed daughter's shares. Um, But it didn't quite turn out that way. So was disappointed daughter, what what was the the basis of her claim of oppression? Did it involve Dad's capacity or what? She had a number of limbs to it. Um, Firstly, um, she fell down in relation to the claim about Dad arising from that guardianship tribunal discussion Um, the agreement was explicitly in principle, and so um, the attempt to enforce it when it hadn't really been nailed down in relation to its terms failed. Um, Then our disappointed daughter submitted that other factors amounted to to oppression, um, including the strange um, appointment and removal as a director in about 2004, uh, the difficulty in getting financial records, the uh, failure on the part of dad and other daughters to accept her offer of a, uh, based on the $1.3 million valuation and uh, an issue she raised in cross-examination, a sort of a general disappointment about the lack of consultation um, that uh, she had in relation to the affairs of the company. Disappointed and probably a little <laughs> bit desperate. The court actually rejected her claim. Why was that, James? Number of limbs. Um, the length of time that had passed since that 2004 strange administrative appointment and unappointment um, had passed, you know, it was 13 years in the past, so it was difficult to say that was oppressive. Uh, in relation to the offers to buy and sell shares, well, they're offers which a party is free to accept or reject, and the sort of commercial acceptance or rejection of those um, is not something that the court found um, could be the basis of an oppression claim here. Um, and the lack of consultation on the choice of properties that the company might invest in was not found to give rise to oppression. Now, what was interesting was a comment Justice Black made at paragraph 47 to the effect of um, the familial nature of this company meant that the conduct that might have been oppressive in relation to a more commercial company, if I can put it that way, was found not to be oppressive in the context of a family company. Ooh, complicated things, aren't they, families? Now, the company in the case of Munsterman and Rayward, I think you mentioned that earlier, didn't you, James? I did. Yeah. This, is, this, is, this is where Justice Stevenson gave his valuable sort of guiding, some of his valuable guiding principles. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, in, the, in, in, in that instance, they, the company also carried on a small business. So what led to the oppression action in this case? So we have two directors who are the two shareholders, 50-50. One director resides in Sydney and is ill. One director resides, um, luckily for him, on the Gold Coast, I think it is, uh, and is employed in the day-to-day operations of the company's business. The company operates a business on the Gold Coast and our Queensland director is in there um, earning his salary, doing his work, managing the affairs, and our 
Sydney director uh, is in Sydney, not doing that. And um, at one stage, our Sydney director makes an offer to sell his shares to the Brisbane director, which the Brisbane director does not accept. Hmm. Well, why did the court agree that the defendant had engaged in oppressive conduct and order the sale of his shares to the plaintiff? Because of his conduct, and you're going to forgive me, I hope, Susanna, for just working through some of it, because um, when the position is described as an irreconcilable deadlock arises between the two, I think it could be fairly clear why. So our Sydney director does all sorts of things. Uh, firstly, he attempts to be reinstated as a financial controller when there are existing employees who are already performing that role and they're performing it for vastly less money. Um, secondly, he issues an invoice to the company for $16,000 when the evidence showed no work had actually been done and he accepted in cross-examination that the invoice was a quote-quote try-on to benefit himself at the company's expense. So the guy, um, guy in the Gold Coast doing all the hard yards, guy yep. in Sydney not very well, not doing much and issues an invoice. Yes, that's right. When uh, it hadn't been requested, no work was actually done, uh, and um, and it was just a try on. And uh, he sends an all staff email to the effect that the company had insufficient funds to pay the staff superannuation entitlements, which was not the case. And you can imagine how alarming it would be for staff to receive an email like that. And generally, something he again accepts in cross examination, he was holding the company at ransom so he could get what he wanted. And so, as you might imagine, <laughs> the court there found that the Section 232 commercial unfairness factors we discussed earlier were satisfied. But unlike our uh, Canberran eye doctors in Shanahan and Jatese, um, the 233 relief was made and our Sydney director was ordered to sell his shares to our Brisbane director pursuant to valuation evidence. And you might say, well, isn't that what the Sydney director was after all the time? And my response is, I presume that the value of the sale pursuant to the judgment was a little smaller than the mm. Sydney director might have hoped. Right, yeah, and probably a tiny little bit of legal costs involved as well. <laughs> Who knows? Hopefully not. Surely not, Susanna. These things can be run on a very tight ship. Well, finally, the majority shareholders in a company may be in a position to have the cost of defending the oppression action paid for by the company. Not too bad, that result. And this is what happened in Seller and Lazatav Proprietary Limited. So here the minority shareholders were unsuccessful in persuading the federal court to grant an injunction restraining the company from paying the legal costs. Why were they unsuccessful, James? This is an interesting one. It's oppression within oppression, Susanna. So uh, similar to the film Inception, we've got um, a big, large oppression suit where our minority shareholders are complaining about the behaviour of the majority in relation to a company that owns a marina. And as this big piece of litigation is rumbling along, it comes to light that the um, majority, our defendants in the big piece of litigation, are having their legal fees paid by the company, who is another defendant to the big piece of litigation. And so, in essence, our majority have a big war chest of the company's money that they can use to defend the oppression suit, whereas our minority, and they might say 
whereas the poor old minority um, do not have access to the same war chest. Now, what the court found here was it is possible that causing the company to pay the legal fees of defendants to an oppression suit could itself be oppressive, but the balance of convenience needed to grant urgent interlocutory relief is not met here because our plaintiffs could just get that money back by way of a damages order at the conclusion of the proceedings. Right. So while there might have been prospects in the overall claim, uh, the fact that they needed to do it urgently and on an interlocutory basis meant that they were unable to satisfy the balance of convenience test. So where, as you say, there's oppression within oppression meets other kinds of oppression, we are talking the territory of the Inception movie or the <laughs> Matrix. It's the Matrix. <laughs> so, <laughs> so looking at the Matrix of all these cases and how, yeah. how it operates, what do you say, James, are the, are the common themes that we can extract from the cases? Yes. Um, I say this with, without any disrespect to the parties, but one of the themes that might emerge are the sort of interpersonal feelings and the desires to be involved with companies in a certain way. Um, management and control of the company or the absence of those things can motivate a plaintiff. Um, if we're talking technically, frankly, it's the lack of an exit strategy. You see some of these parties who are essentially trapped um, in their role and the fact they can't easily get out is another common theme. Um, and bearing these issues in mind, uh, it's illuminating to think that some of these sets of proceedings might be the result of differences of opinion, perhaps as much as legal and commercial principles. Maybe they both need life coaches. Maybe we should so throw life coaches into company directors' yeah, meetings. Yes. Chuck it in the constitution. Yeah, it's a good idea. Now, one practical way of dealing with the problem is clearly for shareholders to enter into a precise and comprehensive, they're my words, shareholders' agreement. What might be the issues that such an agreement should deal with, in your view, James? Um, I'd endorse your words of precise and comprehensive. I, I think that's the right approach. What you want um, at the start, or alternatively, as soon as possible, <laughs> is to get an agreement together where these parties are um, all of one mind on relevant things. Now, you'll forgive me for not going through all of the points. Hopefully, the paper has some value there. But we want an accession procedure for binding new shareholders to the agreement. We want to deal with things like whether there's a restriction on share transfers. We definitely want a method for resolving disputes and what happens in the case of deadlock. Um, we want to know how meetings are taking place. We want to regulate capital raising. We probably want a business plan. Um, one thing that the shareholders agreements sometimes lack is an agreement about what the company is actually doing. Um, we want to think about whether directors and related entities can contract with the company. We want to see how we're dealing with conflicts of interest all sorts of things that, um, if they had been in place before some of this litigation, might have saved the parties a whole lot of money and a whole lot of heartache. So, 
What if a shareholder and or director conflict has escalated to the point where it's so acrimonious and so ugly and they're so full of spite and human hatred that no such agreement is feasible? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm using the family law analogy here. Or, or either or both parties are engaging in the oppressive conduct conduct it's it's hateful it's shakespearean what are the <laughs> options available to the shareholders there james well uh, well everyone should start working on their memoirs of course if they can make it uh, a <laughs> dramatic it would be step one but uh, i'm afraid i'm a litigator at heart Susanna. and so essentially uh, step one is to agree and if we can't agree uh, we litigate um, so um, it's almost always in the best interest of all parties to sit down and think really really carefully about whether we can nut out an agreement that might include some of the factors that uh, we worked through a little earlier. And in the absence of being able to do that, it may well be that the best course is to approach the court for relief. I wonder if in the crime world, directors have actually been the subjects of professional hits. James, thank you so much for a very interesting review of oppression proceedings under the Corpse Act. And James Dapache is from Makinson Dapache Lawyers in Sydney. And, of course, James has mentioned to us that his paper, which contains further gory details, is available and it's on our website.